0: Up to this point, Rav Chaim has been discussing the Hanhagas HaMeshpet, the conduct of God's justice, all of the symptoms and all of the implications of God's conduct of justice, which gives man freedom of choice, and the reward and punishment system that becomes part of it. Halim Yehuda, the concealment of God that is necessary in order for man to exercise choice, and the last thing that we learned about this whole concept is the concept of imprint. We spoke last week about the concept that even though there is halim yichudo, that there is a concealment of God in, this, in his Hanhagas but nevertheless an imprint remains and it's based upon that imprint that we are able to read the message and make the message clearer with our choices. And that's what we talked about last week and we're not going to really go over that. Now Rav Moshe Chaim Litzater is taking a turn and he's going to focus in on the second conduct. The conduct which is referred to as Hanhagaz Hayichud. The conduct by which God reacts with his world not in a cause and effect but where God makes things happen in his world because God's uh, overseeing the ultimate goal for which the world was created wants to guarantee that the world moves closer to that goal and will do things unilaterally to make it happen. That's not necessarily at all tied to deserving or tied to, the, to what man is, is doing. So in other words, in the Hanagas on Mishpat conduct, it's almost as if God's hands are tied to what we do. And God cannot respond except in measure to what we do because he doesn't want to respond except in the measure of what we do. But with Han Hagas HaYichud, the thing which is primary in God's focus is not what we're doing but what has to get done. And what has to get done, God has a certain plan for it. And from time to time, God will make interventions to make sure that it gets done. Now, it could very well be that God uh, utilizes some of the choices that man makes to get his job done. But it's essentially a unilateral action on God's part to move the world in the direction that it was created for and to the degree that it will not conflict with man's choices. God will even utilize man's choices to further his end of Hanagas Hayichud, this conduct of oneness. And therefore, very often, God, in fact, uses a negative choice and u- utilizes it to get his job done. And the case that we've said numerous times is the case of Rus as one example, where a negative choice was made by Eli Melech to leave Eretz Israel and to go outside of Eretz Israel and God utilized that negative choice to bring Rus into the Jewish people who would become that would begin the links in the chain that would lead to the Divinic Dynasty and ultimately to Mashiach, which is the ultimate goal of Hanhagas HaYichud. So there was a, a negative choice and within the framework of the negative choice God got his job done that this woman called Rus will be brought into Klal Yisrael through a negative choice. Had that negative choice not been made God would have fi- found a different way of, of getting Rus into, into Klal Yisrael upon which the Chazals say this attitude very clearly Harbe shluchim lamaken. There are many messengers for what God wants to get done. And if it wouldn't have been this one, it would have been another one. So God will will uh, monopolize on choices that man makes to get the job done, but the the job, the intervention of God to move the world in that direction very often is a unilateral one. And this is what Ramei Shechem is going to begin discussing in these upcoming paragraphs. Let's see the paragraph inside. Since the ultimate goal that God destined for the world was the revelation of His oneness and not its, its ultimate and constant concealment, like we explained before and all of the concealment is seen nothing more than as a means towards arriving at the revelation. It is only seen as a transitory step. It's only seen as a, as a method through which God is hoping that the revelation and the gilu will occur. Okay, therefore, therefore, even though God did create this whole new conduct within which His face is concealed from the world, Nevertheless, within this conduct, God is constantly looking and putting in an an energy that will make the world reach its ultimate goal nonetheless. Now let me explain what Rav Chaim Litzat is saying over here. We once, uh, we once explained this in regards, in regards to reward and punishment. And really the same thing is true in regards <coughs> to Hanhagas HaYichud. <coughs> we pointed out that God has two conducts. God has a conduct by which He uh, rewards people for the things that they do which are positive, And God sometimes has to punish people for the negative things that they do retribution as it's called we pointed out that both reward for the positive and retribution for the negative they both come from God's love because the ultimate intent of both of them the ultimate intent of both of them is to make man grow and to enable man to grow and where there are deviations to get man back on track so therefore Rav Chaim we explain that Rav Chaim says That Therefore we can find very often that even when God is punishing a person, the punishment is mixed with a lot of love. Why? See, if if reward would be an act of love and punishment would be just you double-crossed me so I'm going to get even with you, so then how do we conceive of love mixed into a retribution? now God's in a bad mood he's angry he's setting you straight he's fixing your wagon so to speak so where does love come into where does love come into the picture but being that we explained that the entire system of free will was out of God's love for us because God wanted us to grow in the maximum way of growing so the reward and punishment, that's the outgrowth of the free will, is also emanates from God's love. So therefore, since the free will emanates from God's love because he wants us to grow through our choice, and the reward and punishment is, is just an end result of that love which, in a, which created the free choice. So therefore, when God does, does have to punish, it's not a contradiction that within the punishment there's a lot of love that might temper the punishment because the punishment to begin with comes from the free will system. The free will system itself comes from God's love of man. So it's not as if God turns off the love button and turns on the anger button. The love button is always on. The love button being on creates free will. The free will creates reward and punishment. But the reward and punishment is to ensure the free will system, which is a manifestation of God's love. So therefore, even when a retribution does occur... It's not in contradiction to the deepest motivation that got the whole system started, which was God's measurement of love. God's love for mankind that man should grow through free will. So what Rav Chaim Latzat is saying is that not only is this true in the relationship, in the relationship of, of reward and punishment, that it's not amazing that in a punishment there can be love because the whole reward-punishment system comes from free will, which comes from love. Moshchei Sat is saying that this is also true in Hanhagas HaYichud. Why? In other words, the following. What's the Hanhagas Hamishpat? A free will system because of God's love for us. Correct? And the free will system will then create Hanhagas Hamishpat, the conduct of justice with reward and punishment. So that is all a growth, an outgrowth of God's love. So what are we dealing with? We're dealing with God's love. But God says... How will I, my love manifest itself? By giving you the choice, the choices, and the exercise of choice, and part of that love, which gives you the exercise of choice, will also be that when you will do something right, you will be rewarded. When you will do something negative, there'll be a retribution for it, so that the system can work. So that the system can work, and man would ultimately grow from the system. So what's going on in Hagas HaMishpat? There is not a moment in Han Hagas but that God's love is turned off, so, that, so God's love is on. Now, if God's love is on, if God decides all of a sudden in the middle of this kind of a period that God has to intervene and God has to begin with Han Hagas HaYichud because he's got to get the world a little closer to where it's supposed to be going, that certainly is a demonstration of God's love. God is saying, I don't like to see, I don't like where the world is going. It's not reaching the goal for which it was created. I want to intervene and I want to move it a little bit closer. So, in other words, since the whole Han Haggis HaMishpit is a demonstration of God's love, it's not unusual that smack in the middle of Han Haggis God could all of a sudden enact his Han Because Han Haggis HaMishpit is love and Han is love. It's just two different processes by which we're trying to get to the same end. That is, God is trying to get to the same end. In other words, if Han Hagas would be understood, if it would be viewed, that God is saying, no love, you've got to do it all on your own and leave me out of it, and there's no connection on God's part, in other words, of, of wanting to give. So then, all of a sudden, in the middle of Han Hagas but God goes, says, an abrupt turn, I'm in a loving mood today, Han HaYichud. It, there, there's an abruptness there's no flow from Hanagas Mishpat into Hanagas HaYichud Hanagas HaMishvet love was closed down Hanagas HaYichud all of a sudden it's opening up what happened? so Rimash Meshachem sat to say but you're making a mistake Hanagas HaMishvet was never a closing down of God's love for his people it was one process in his love for his people the reward and punishment system which is necessary through the free will system. But his, his love was never closed. So therefore, Rav Meshachay says, so what is the most dominant thing? The most dominant thing is a four-letter word called love. So sometimes the conduct is Hanhagas but because God feels that that's the most beneficial pro- process by which the end will be reached, sometimes God says it's not sufficient to reach the end. Man is making too many negative choices. Man isn't getting where he's supposed to be going. I will therefore enact Han HaYichud to move the thing along. But there's a consistency, there's a flow from Han Hagas into Han HaYichud. There isn't an inner contradiction in what's going on. Han Hagas is one form of love and Han Hagas HaYichud is a different form of love. This is what Rav Ma'ayusha Chaim is saying. Furthermore, Rav Ma'ayusha Chaim is saying he's taking it one step deeper. Not only is there a flow from Hanagasa Mishpat into Hanagasa Yechud, in other words, it's not an abrupt change in God from one thing to another. The process is different, but it's not an abrupt change in attitude, in goal, it's not an abrupt change. So Ramash Chayyam Lazata says, besides it not being an abrupt change, it is, uh, it is a predictable conduct of God. In other words, it's predictable that that's what's going to happen. Another other words, being that God only started off the whole Hanhagas HaMishpat because God felt that would be the best way to arrive at the answer. So if at any point in history God says, well, this isn't the best way to arrive at the answer, it, it's in contradiction to its very existence at that moment. In other words, what brought the conduct of, of, of free will and the reward-punishment system into being? because God made it the decision it's the best way to get to the end if at one point God says historically speaking right now it's not the best way to get to the end so then that which licensed it into existence isn't here anymore the license that brought it into existence is not here anymore so automatically it ceases to function because the only thing that brought it into existence is because that's the best way towards the end well, if at this moment God makes a decision, well, this isn't the way we're going to get to the end, so at that moment that function would cease and the, the function of Hanogas HaYichud would take over. This is what Rav Meshachayim had to say. So number one, he's saying that there is a natural flow from Hanogas HaMishpat into Hanogas HaYichud. There is no abrupt change of attitude on God's part. They're both manifestations of love. They're just different processes towards the end towards the end goal, that's number one, so there's no abrupt change. Not only isn't there an abrupt change, but we can predict that God is going to go into the Hanagas HaYichud mode. Because since the Hanagas HaMishpat mode is only created because it's the best way, at any moment in time that it's decided that it's not serving the best the, as the best process, it automatically doesn't exist it's not licensed to exist because at that moment it's not serving the purpose for which it was intended to serve. Didn't God know that could happen? Excuse me? Didn't God know that could happen? Okay. This is, uh, the question that you're asking is a, is, is a major question in Jewish philosophy which Maimonides brings up and which other commentaries brings up. The question of when God changes from one conduct to another conduct, did God know that he was going to have to or didn't he know that he was going to have to? All right? Now, just to, con- just to continue your question and make it a bona fide philosophical question, uh, and if God did know that it was going to happen, so it's as if to say that God knew that we weren't going to make the right choices, and if God knew we weren't going to make the right choices by darn it, we weren't going to. And if we weren't going to, what kind of a free will system is it? So essentially, it's the age-old question which Maimonides raises of Yediyah and Bechira. How do we reconcile God's foreknowledge of our behavior with the concept of free will? Now, that's not, tonight is not the night to discuss that. It's a major question. Maimonides talks about it. There are many different definitions of what Maimonides' answer to this question is. uh, We're not going to get into it tonight, but it's a valid question that has to be dealt with. Essentially what Maimonides says is that though man cannot understand why it isn't a contradiction, it's not. Now, exactly how to elaborate on that kind of an answer, it looks like a contradiction, but it's not. I mean, this is a whole discussion. Uh, this This is a whole discussion which I prefer not to get into tonight. Because it's, it gets very abstract and very philosophical. and it's, it's not worthwhile to get into it tonight, but it has to be dealt with sometime in the future. <coughs> okay, so these are the two points. Okay, so the two points that Ramesh Chaim Sat is making up to this point is number one, there is no abruptness in God changing from one conduct to the other because both conducts are motivated by a foundation of love and it's just a question of which process will best suit The end goal, that's number one. So therefore God will move between one and the other depending upon which is more suitable. Number two, being that the whole license for God standing back and saying, I'm not going to do anything and I'm only going to react to what you're doing is because God believed that that was the best way to get to the end. At the time that it's decided that it's not the best way and it's not going to serve the best end, it would be natural and built into the system that God would intervene. Because God never left His commitment. God just felt that His commitment to the better, to the best state of the world, would be served through free will. But the commitment of for the best of the world was never. God never departed from the commitment. Just God felt that this would be the best process. The moment it's it's viewed that it's not, it's seen that it's not the best process. The very commitment that God made to the world would dictate the (laughs) Hanhagasayichud, because the commitment never changed. Yes. Uh, uh, Hashem reacts to an indu- individual <coughs> or openness to him and is taken out of a circumstance of, of uh, punishment and justice and given what we would call mercy or something or lifted, would you call that a change when he really hasn't gone through um, the full brunt of the punishment but somehow he becomes open to a change and Hashem lifts him? Okay, that that happens to be an excellent question. I'll repeat the question and I'll try to answer it. It's a very good question. If a person does something which is essentially a negative thing that really would deserve a negative response and before, but God has patience, he doesn't react as quickly as we sometimes react and he gives the person time to make a change and the person makes a change and he goes through a chuva process which lifts the need for the negative, for the negative response on God's part—not the negative response, but the the response that's the proper measure for measure—would that be considered the fact that God doesn't uh, respond in kind to the action of man? Would that be considered as uh, as a manifestation of Hanhagas hayichud or a manifestation of Hanhagas hamishpat? This is the question. Uh, the uh, Primarily the answer to that question is that it is Hanhagas Hamishpat. Uh, the reason for it being that the process of tshuva, whichever way you you turn it or whichever way you look at it, is a process which God gives us that allows man to nullify that which he did. And once he has the ability I mean the fact that he has the ability to nullify is a present alone, that he has the ability. But the mechanism that it works is that man has the ability to nullify that which he created or that which he destroyed, better put, by the negative action. That's what Chuva does. How does Chuva do, do it? Why does Chuva do it? That's a whole discussion. But whatever the reason is, but the reality of Chuva is that it takes away the negativity that was created. It's considered a negative buster. It, it, it destroys the negativity in whatever way that it does. Once the negativity is destroyed, there is no need for the response of retribution, which ultimately is also only to take away the negativity. So it does work within the mechanism. It does work within the mechanism of Hanhagas hamishpat. But I might say, but I might say that the phenomena of tshuva itself within the human being could very often be In other words, the fact that a person lives for 30, 40 years one way and then all of a sudden he has a different mindset and all of a sudden he sees things differently and all of a sudden he's motivated to make a change this c- can have to do with the historical intervention of God where God says not only is the Jew required to do tshuva but darn it all he will do tshuva in other words, when the Torah talks about the mitzvah of Chuva, the, the Torah says it in a very interesting way. The Torah doesn't just say, do chuva. The Torah says, and you will do chuva. As if to say that you're required to do it, but not only are you required to do it, but it's so sure that it's going to happen that the Torah says it as a prophetic, a prophetic message of the future. Now, to a certain extent, that which brings the person at a particular junction in his life to... Start seeing things different and analyzing things differently can very often have to do with something that God sends into the world that inspires this person to begin thinking differently now the, the, uh, the question that a person might ask themselves is ah if this person only did tshuva because God brought some down into the world so what's the tshuva worth so that's a, that's a nonsensical question because we know that God brings lots of stuff down into this world And the fact that God brings it down doesn't mean for one moment that it's going to be utilized and that the person is going to come to the challenge of the message that's there. Even after a person has the thoughts of making a change, we know that after the thought of making a change, to actually making the change, there's a lot of work that has to be done. So the fact that God, so to speak, uh, lights the match under our pants is in no way a real uh, depriving of of our own function in the chuva process. It's just sparking that which hopefully through our Bahiris will become a big uh, a, a major light that's going to make the change. But so that could be a manifestation. The phenomena of chuva can be a manifestation of Hayichud. that it can be. but the the way it works once it's in motion, once it's in motion, it's re- primarily a mechanism of Hanagas But ha <coughs> Okay, let's continue in the paragraph. Vizedava And this is something which is very simple. Now listen to the kind of material that he's going to share with us that's simple. Vizedava HaPashat this is, usually a, uh, this is usually our warning sign that we're going to hear something that's not simple. Viva and this is a very simple thing. Hiquasha you already heard how God made a, uh, a limitation or a, or a boundary to darkness. Shalataivara of good and bad calls man Hashita that comes within that is all within the boundaries of the 6,000 years in other words the entire phenomenon of God's concealment and the choice to do right or the choice to do wrong is specifically limited to one period of time which the Gemara refers to this comes from a Gemara this comes from the Talmud a 6,000 year period I know everybody is figuring out how many years are left Zekolzman Hashita Alfin Shnid and God already decreed from the very beginning of cre- creation what would be in the end that that the condition that exists is a temporary condition so Rav Meshachayim L'tsat is saying something here which is very very interesting Rav Meshachayim L'tsat is saying first of all the foundation of God's commitment to man for the betterment of man because of God's love to give is the very ingredient of every conduct of God. That's number one. Number two, beyond that, even the conducts that we know that seem to be have a lot of uh, brunt to them, in other words, the rewards and punishment system, I want you to know that from the moment that God started the world, he was already planning for its end. Its end in the sense of the negativity that was allowed to be available to man. So from the moment that a God began that world with the availability of choice, which means the availability to to choose to do negative and to grow up negative, the moment that God created it, God was already planning its nullification because God already set it into a system that within 6,000 years it has to erode. It has to go out of existence. So it's not as if... So let me explain this. It's not as if God created it and if God won't intervene later on in history it can go on forever and ever. No. From the very beginning when God created it was only given a life cycle of existence of a maximum of 6,000 years. So it's not as if you have a... It's not like a force that unless you stop it it can just go on and on and on. To begin with, it doesn't have the strength to go on for more than that maximum amount of time. So that's another that's another provision within Hanhagah Sameshbut. Another is one provision in Hanhagah Sameshbut is that if it doesn't work, God will start Hanhagah Yichud. So that's one provision that we get to where we're supposed to go. Another provision that we get to where we're supposed to go is because when God created the Hanhagah Sameshbut. He programmed it that no matter what, it can't live more than 6,000 years. The The availability of negativity was never programmed into the system to be able to live. Just like a car after 10 years or whatever have you, it goes out of existence. You can turn a somersault and turn every piece of the car, you know, change every piece of the car, but sooner or later the car goes. So Rav Moshe Chaim is saying that's the way God created the world. From the beginning, though, of the world, when He created the availability of negativity, He was already planning inborn that it should, you know, just like they, you know, all the car manufacturers make cars that they should become obsolete and that they should they shouldn't work past a certain amount of time. So too did God create the availability of negativity, like the companies create cars and like companies create products that they can only last so long. Okay now and what's the end of it the yashari khuda magula and the end of it is that god's oneness <coughs> will be revealed vataiva sa ilam kfula natzaknat sachen and the good of the world will then exe- uh, exist for eternity in kain if so kol yaim the yaim shaiver nimsa ha ilam kar of yisrael shlei if this is true by definition, the world is coming closer every single day to its completion because since God placed into the very creation of the availability of negativity that it has to erode so every day that the world is older, the day is cl- the world is closer to that point of the erosion, the erosion process is going on. Sometimes we can't measure it. Sometimes we can't see it. It's very, What's going on is very subtle. But there is a constant process of it going. Just like a car. Does a car just one day die? Or it dies slowly? A car dies slowly. So Remar Shechem El is saying that the negativity in the world was programmed into the world that it's dying slowly. Now... This could one could ask a major question about this. Negativity is dying slowly. If anything good is dying slowly, negativity is dying slowly. Where? How? So the the way to answer this question, that is, negativity dying slowly or not, the answer to the question is negativity dying slowly is not by how much negativity there is in the world. Quite to the contrary, the more negativity there is in the world the more we know that negativity is dying slowly. Now that's a paradoxical statement, but I'll explain it. In other words, let me give an example. Let me give an example of this. It's a little bit further ahead in the Chumash, but it's a good example. In Parshas Sazri and Parshas Mitzorah, in the third of the five Chumashim, the Torah talks about certain Gaim, about certain... Uh, Uh, kinds of plagues, certain kinds of leprosies that came to a person. And when a part of his body was stricken with leprosy uh, it was an indication that there was internally a spiritually unhealthy condition that uh, manifested itself even in the physical being of the person. And he had to go away from the people because he had done things of social crime that created it Lashon Haro whatever it might have been and his cure didn't come through a doctor his cure came through the contact with the Kohen the Kohen used to visit him the Kohen used to talk to him and if he changed in the time that he was in seclusion so the nega went away now the halacha is the following the halacha is that if a person has a nega in other words he's afflicted with leprosy on a part of his body so then he's rendered impure he has to leave the the social environment that he has misused and possibly not been a good element in the social environment he has to go into seclusion until he becomes well until it goes away let's say however the Cohen comes to visit him and the Cohen sees that not only isn't his leprosy cured but the leprosy has taken over his entire body and virtually there's no spot on his body that's not afflicted with leprosy so the halach is, he's tahir. He's pure. That seems to be a paradox. If he has leprosy just on one part, he's tummy, Then he's impure. It's no good. But if he has leprosy in his, ent- in his entire body, then he's tired. That is not an indication of impurity. It's an indication of purity. Yeah, that's, that's some paradox. So the commentaries explain that. How do we understand this? The commentaries explain that we understand this in the following way. When negativity reaches a level of of total expansion and a total and of total uh, and total spreading over a, a situation where there's virtually no good left, where there's no good left afterwards, that's the beginning of its end. Why? Because as long as the negativity is mixed even with a little good. The little good that the negativity has keeps it going. Just like when you want to say a fabulous lie uh, and you want people to believe it, you have to put in a little truth. And on the little truth that you put into the fabulous lie, you'll be able to sell the lie. But if the thing is a lie from beginning to end, people will be very suspicious of it. Why? So the Gemara says, Something that is a pure, unadulterated lie from beginning to end without a shred of truth in it, people won't accept it because it's so negative, it's so empty that people will be able to see through it. This is what the Gemara says about checker. So therefore, I'm not giving you advice on how to lie, but the merest shred of truth that you can interject into a fabulous lie will go a long way. That's not what your mother meant when she said honesty pays, but that's, But that's the truth. The truth is that a shred of truth put into a fabulous lie will give the fabulous lie its strength to exist. Now, that's in the example of a lie and making people believe a lie. But this is true specifically in the powers of negativity as well. The powers of negativity thrive on the fact that they have something good to live off. But the moment that they have nothing good to live off at all, and the situation is completely empty, completely empty, it's then that the person that is going through that experience is closer to Kedusha. Why? Because there a situation which is totally empty, MaSheboa Achrav, that which comes after it, has to be something better. Because it can't get worse anymore. And the total emptiness will drive the person to look for something. As long as the person is a mixture, and as long as the person can pat himself on the back and say, it's not so bad, Charlie, you did this good and that good. So the person will calm his conscience and not feel so internally empty because he did one or two good things. But the moment that there's nothing left, right, it's, it's a paradox. And it's all negative, that situation is seen as a situation that will actually usher in a period that will be a better period. Because the person can't live in the total void, with a total emptiness, without any shred of anything. And this is what the Gemara means. When the Gemara says, the Gemara says that Aim ben David Ba, Elabadarshikulakhayevakula kulazakai that uh, Ben David Mashiach, isn't going to come except in a generation that's either totally meritorious or totally the opposite of meritorious. So Rav Dessel says this doesn't make any sense. A generation that's totally meritorious, we understand why Mashiach is going to come. Because he should come. We deserve that he should come. But in a generation that there is no merit to the generation, that's when he should come? So Rav says yes. Because in a generation when there's no merit to hang on to, the people are ready for something more meaningful and, and more truthful. Because they have nothing left to hang on to, And the negativity, because of the emptiness that it is, inherently begs something that will have more meaning. So, I don't know how we got to this, but uh, this is the process. In other words, so we made a statement that every day, I know how we got to this, Ramesh Chaim Litzata says that every day that goes on, we march closer and closer To the nullification of the negativity and the world realizing that which it was created for. It's a slow process. Just like the car that was made only to last for ten years, the uh, uh, screws will begin falling off after three years and every major part will have to be repaired within seven or eight years. Slowly the pieces fall apart. So Rav Meshachayim sata says, similarly, in terms of the world, it's also that way. The negativity is slowly being chipped away. So I asked the question, uh, maybe there are some people that are helping the negativity being chipped away. But all in all, it seems like negativity is getting bigger and bigger. And the answer to that is that if negativity is getting bigger and bigger, it's at least occupying more and more of space without a mixture with good. And the more that it occupies without the mixture with good, the sooner it is coming to its doom, the sooner it's coming to its own destruction, because it's losing the legs upon which it stands. Even negativity needs legs to stand on. Without legs to stand on, it has to destroy itself. So in that sense, It's going slowly in that direction. That's in one sense. But the truth of the matter is that it's not only in the sense that negativity is becoming bigger, and by it becoming bigger and taking up more space, it's losing its legs, the the, the legs of truth that give it its validity to live in a mixture. That's That's not the whole story. The truth of the matter is that the concept that negativity is slowly being chipped away, and slowly slowly negativity is being diminished, is not only because if negativity takes up more space, it's destroying itself. There are other parts to it as well. And I'd like to share some of them with you. Uh, A principal theme in Judaism is that what we do in our relationship with God is not to be seen merely as my benefit or my disbenefit, depending upon my choice. In other words, the notion that I'm placed into this world, God puts before me a whole list of expectations and says, I want you to do your best, but it's all up to you. And now the person makes his choices. So, we often view this as, okay, God gave me a list, God has expectations, and now I am filling in my particular test paper with my name on top of the test paper, and I'm going to give in my test paper, and depending upon how hard I studied and how much the material meant to me, that's the grade that I'm going to get. That's the way we view it. But the truth of the matter is that that's incorrect. Because the nature of man is that he is connected to all worlds and what he does doesn't only affect himself and we've spoken about this once before but it affects everything around him what do i mean by this so let me give an example let's say let's say a jew is presented with a test of morality let's say a jew is presented with a test of mor- mor- morality should i or shouldn't i should I or shouldn't I? So the natural tendency that we have in our decision-making process is, listen, it's my life. I can do with my life what I want to do. The only thing that I can tell myself in total honesty is that yes, I will have to quote-unquote assume responsibility for my life. All right? So I'll deal with God about it. But the rest of the world really doesn't have anything to do with it and it's not their business. But this is really not true. Because if I go ahead and I do that which is immoral, because I am connected to every other Nishama, because I am connected to everything else in the world, if I bring down into my own life a measure of negativity by an activity that's contrary to spirituality, I have brought negativity into the world that now the world experiences, not only myself. Obviously, the most intense part of the experience is for myself, because I did it. I'm the, I'm the one that brought it. I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the, the principal party to the negativity, so obviously it's going to affect me. But it's not only going to affect me, it's going to affect everything that's connected to me. Everything, and everything is connected to me. On the other hand, if the person makes the decision that he's not going to break... And he's going to stand for what's right. And he's going to resist the negativity. So we've said many times before that resisting negativity creates holiness. I've brought holiness into my life. But not only into my life, but through the vehicle of my life, I've brought more holiness into the world in which I reside. And those that live in the world benefit from the holiness that I brought into this world by the decision that I made for myself personally. See, the human being is seen as a vehicle that brings into this world. He brings into this world negativity or the or, or, or positive, positive energies, and he's the vehicle for it. But once it's brought in, it's here. So it's here either if it's a positive thing, it's here if it's a negative thing. And then it will have its ramifications on the rest of the world. So therefore, every time that a Jew does a mitzvah, every time that a Jew resists doing an Avera, he is contributing to the goal for which the world was created. Because every time that he resists an Avera and every time that he does a mitzvah, he's bringing a little more of the holiness into the world. The little more holiness that's brought into the world destroys the negativity that was in its place before. You're bringing a measure of holiness. So virtually every mitzvah that a person does is aiding and is helping in what the Rav Meshachayim Tzata refers to as Kol vayayim, every moment and every day the world is coming closer to its tikun. And who's making it happen? Every mitzvah, every tefillah, every Amin Yeheh Shmei Rabbah, every Kapitol Tehillim. Every one of those things is helping in that process which is referred to as every Ha' el tikkunai. The world is going towards its its tikkun. <coughs> the the way that we view, for instance, the holidays, the Yemen Taivim, is also the same way. When we talk about a Jew going through the different holidays of the year, Shabbos, Pesach, Shvuis, and reliving the whole historical process of the Jewish people. Matan Matantaira, uh, kapara uh, Sukkot that that whole cycle what's, what's the concept of that? in each Yantif there are Tikunim there, are, there is Kedusha that's brought into the world by the ones that observe that Yantif there are tikkunim that are coming into the world the world is experiencing Geula again the world is experiencing Matan again the world is ex- re-experiencing all of those events and all of those events create tikkunim. They create a mark. And that's why it's not a coincidence that every Yontif prayer talks about the building of the Beis Hamikdash. Why does every Yontif prayer talk about the building of the B'Sham Hamikdash? So we usually think, because on a Yontif we used to bring special sacrifices. Right? And, we really, and now we can't bring them. So instead of, instead of bringing the sacrifice, we make honorable mention of the temple that we used to have and that we hope to get back that's the literal translation but on a deeper level what's really going on is because every yontif is an experience that brings us a step closer to the Beis HaMikdash so of course we should be talking about the Beis HaMikdash because every yontif is an experience of Geula, of Matan of a whole process that is slowly chipping away at the negativity that exists in the world and is inherently bringing us closer and closer to the Beis HaMikdash that we're hoping for. There's a tremendous beauty in what Rav Meshachai is saying. Because were we to see that we, here we, we are living in a world of negativity and then one day God wakes up and God says, I've had enough of this world of negativity. Then essentially what's going on, then essentially what's going on is what? Essentially what's going on is that when the tikkun does come, we really don't have a part in it. For a measure of time, the world was being governed with negativity, and no dent was being made in it. God just said, this is the system that I wanted, and, and I'll let the system go for X amount of years. And then God says, well, the system has, it times up on the system, and now we go into the system where I take the negativity out. So when God changes from system 1 to system 2, with this ch- changing from Hanagas Mishpah to Hanagas HaYichud, have we really done anything that we can stay that say that we have a stake in the Hanagas HaYichud? That we can relate to the Hanagas HaYichud? That we have a part in the historical event which is now occurring? The transition from Hanoges Hamishpat to Hanoges Hayichud. Do we have any personal personal involvement or any personal contribution to it? No. First we had Hanoges Hamishpat. Then God says, "Okay, I'm finished with Hanoges Hamishpat. Now we're starting Hanoges Hayichud." And there's a clean cut. Hanoges Hamishpat is over. Hanoges Hayichud is beginning. But there is no but there is no relationship between the two. It's just an abrupt stop from one and going into the other. If that would be the case. So man's ability to relate to the new stage would be one in which he would be very removed from it. He would be very distant from it. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't contribute anything to it. But that's not the way that God wanted it. Even though Hanhagas HaYichud is the unilateral action of God to get the world closer to where it's supposed to be going... But God wanted that even in his unilateral action, that man should have done things in his life that he could at least relate to that Hanagas HaYichud. What could man do in his life to relate to the Hanagas That while he was working in Hanagas HaMishvet, he made his contribution to chip off a little sliver from the boulders of negativity. And if he made a little contribution to take off some of the negativity, he can relate to the period of Hanagas Because he, he put some effort into it. If you have, for instance, let me give you an example. Let's say, let's say a beautiful, beautiful edifice is built. Okay? And you have a thousand people. Nine hundred of the people really worked on different levels. They really sweated to get that edifice up and then it's finally up and there were a hundred people that love working they love watching other people work and they didn't do anything they just watched it going up when the whole edifice is up afterwards which people are really going to have the pleasure which people are really going to enjoy which people are really going to be able to relate to the entire value of what the edifice stands for The 900 that worked and killed themselves to put it up or the 100 that watched it being put up and didn't put any effort into it. Obviously, the 900 that put some effort into it, there is a tremendous sweetness for the joy of what then stands later on. Because I put work into it. And similarly, when (laughs) Hanhagas Hayyichud occurs... When God does move along the world in that direction, God says that even though there will come a period of time where I might have to make a unilateral action to get to the world, the world there, but I don't want you all to be out in the cold and not to be able to relate to it and not to enjoy it and not to have simcha that finally the, the true edifice is built, the edifice of the world, the palace that the world was supposed to be, is there and that you should feel that you have no connection to it. That's not what God wanted. God wanted that a person should be able to relate to it, be able to enjoy it. How is that? So Rav Meshachayim Letzat is saying that every person can relate to it to the extent that within the context of the world of Hanagas HaMishpat, every little good thing that he did was chipping away a little bit of the negativity. And to the degree that I chipped away negativity, I can enjoy the positive that's being built in its place. Right. So, therefore, <coughs> with this we can understand, for instance, the Gemara says, <laughs> Whoever mourns the destruction of the temple will be meritorious to see in its erection. Now, the, the, there's a big problem with it. Right. There were a lot of people that mourned the, mourned the destruction of the temple and have not seen in its being rebuilt. Isn't that a big problem with a Maimer Khazal? The sages say, call ha- They're different girsais, they're different ways. But everybody that felt the pain of its destruction will rejoice in its being rebuilt. Now, I, you know, there are thousands of Jews through history that cried over its destruction and never s- lived to see it being rebuilt. So isn't there a contradiction there? Now, the answer is very simple. The answer is that when it says in the Chazal, right? it, what it means is that if a person um, really feels bad about its destruction, what does that mean? he feels bad in, in the wake of destruction there wasn't a void that was left in the wake of the destruction of the base of the HaMikdash what happened was in the void of the destruction of the base HaMikdash something else took its place we're not left just with an empty void other Meshigasin, other cultures other things took their place to the point that we are so distant from the destruction of the Beis HaMictish that we don't even know what we're missing so much. Yeah, we're told that we had a Beis HaMictish and we're told that there were miracles, but do we really know what we're missing? We don't even know it. We're so distant from what was missing that we don't even know what was missing. So what are our Chazal saying here? What our Chazal are saying is the following. A person that could be Misa'bala al khubana means that he's hurting over the negativity. He's hurting over what has come into the place of something which was wholesome. It hurts him to see the condition of the world absent of the Beis HaMikdash. The person that's hurting over the negativity is inherently building a spot, if not in the world, certainly within himself, to be able to relate to the Beis HaMikdash. So though he doesn't have the base hamikdash in the physical sense, but the fact that he's misabel achubana means that he's hurting over the negativity that has been created by the void of the base hamikdash. Even the hurting over the void, even hurting over the negativity, is a destruction of part of the negativity. And part of the negativity means that you're clearing space for the base hamikdash to be built. You're making the contribution. To be able to build the base of HaMiktosh. So Zeche Varaya B'Binyana doesn't mean that he's going to see the physical edifice going up. But what it means is that he can relate to Binyana. He can relate to the significance of the Beis HaMiktosh. Why? Because since he's made a contribution of trying to, to, uh, to really see what the negativity is and how cheap it is and how I don't want it, that process of seeing its cheapness and I don't want it, is destroying it, is chipping away the negativity and making place for what has to come in its place. Now I, I want to elaborate on this for a moment. It's something that came up it's something that came up in a in a in a class or in a discussion that I once had Friday night uh, quite recently, which is important. You know, Rav Chaim Khaimlatsata talks about a concept that every day the world is marching if one would close one's eyes and try to imagine what Rav Chaim is saying what one could imagine is close your eyes for a moment and imagine right, the world marching day by day closer To the deepest desire and the deepest delight that God had for the intention of the world from the beginning that he created it. It's marching in that direction. It's not stagnant. It's not staying in one place. It's marching. And what creates the march? What creates the rhythm of the march? Every action, every thought, every twist and turn to destroy some point of negativity in our character, in our behavior, in our attitude, in our disciplines, everything contributes to the rhythm of that march. Uh, it contributes to the rhythm of that march. When Yomim Tevim come, and collectively the entire Jewish people relate to a whole period of time of Geula of Matan the march takes on a quick step. And the march becomes quicker and quicker. <coughs> But I wanted to, to talk for a couple of moments about this concept of kol yayim Yaim, ha'aylam ma'hailech el tikunai, in a certain regard, in a certain way. In our own personal growth, in our own personal growth, <coughs> there are many things that we hope for. And there are many things that we strive to accomplish that over a good measure of time, quote-unquote, don't happen. They don't happen. I hope and I hope and I hope and I try and I want to get the opportunity and I want to get the situation and it doesn't happen. I'm hoping and I'm trying and I'm dreaming. Yes, even dreaming that something should happen. And nothing really happens. A year goes by, two years go by, a year, five years go by, and I'm really not getting there. So the question is, or better yet, the feeling is that most people have is that until I can point to some realistic result of all of the hoping and all of the striving, right, nothing has been accomplished, nothing, nothing has been done. It's almost like the sense that if a person hopes and strives for something, let's say for five years, and then all of a sudden one morning he wakes up and it's there, he almost doesn't relate his hoping and striving of five years to having created the final result. You know, I hoped and I hoped and hoped and it didn't work, and then finally it broke through. So for the last four, three quarters years, it was was futile, and the last ditch effort that I just did made it happen. So what people do, even when they do become successful after a measure of time, is they say to themselves, let's say I put in four years of energy, well in the first year it didn't happen, in the second year it didn't happen, in the third year it didn't happen. So those three years were totally wasted. The fourth year it happened, so the fourth year was a good year. But everything until that point was wasted. We have that kind of a view. We look to see the direct cause and effect and we say, ah, this made it happen. And the three or four years that I banged my head against the wall before, that's exactly what it was. I was banging my head against the wall and nothing was being accomplished. Certainly, if I'm still in the process and I still don't see the result, and it's four years and I don't have a product either, then I certainly think that everything up to this point has been futile. That the whole thing is, is nothing. This is not true. Our Hasidic masters say... That even the striving that a Jew has, even the hope that a Jew has, to arrive at a higher plateau in Ruchnius, has an effect. In what Rav Moshe Chaim says, Kol Yom HaOlam El tikune. because when God creates the rhythm of the march of the world coming closer to where it's supposed to go, what are the ingredients that make the rhythm of that march? Results on people's part or even the striving and the hope. The march that the world is is marching towards Tikkunai is largely not in results, but in the hope and in the striving and in the aspiration to eventually reach it. The energy of the march is primarily comes from the hope from the krechts of the Yid, from the tear that the Jew sheds, those tears, those hopes, those aspirations, that's the rhythm that creates the march of Helech El Tikunai. So to say that until I come up with a result that I can point to, aha, my work finally created, I didn't do anything, it's not true. Maybe in terms of the product that I'm looking for, I still didn't reach the product. But don't think for a moment that a Yiddish Krechts goes lost every krechz that a Yid can express, every pain that a person can feel, every hope that a person can express uh, with his mouth or with his heart, that I wish that the situation was a better one, I wish that the situation was a more positive one, I wish that I did one more mitzvah today, I wish that I could have been more kind to a person today, I wish that I could have done this. Every wish part becomes part of that march, El tikkunai. There is nothing that doesn't contribute to the momentum of that march. The notion that it's only uh, factual results that creates the march is not true. It's not true. The tsipia of Klal Yisrael, the aspiration of Klal Yisrael to reach is the is the tune of the march. That's the tune of the march. That's the energy that keeps the march going. That's the body of what the march is all about. Let's finish up this paragraph. oud, <coughs> and not only do we contribute to this rhythmic march towards the to, to, towards the ultimate goal. God is constantly involved and constantly uh, uh, doing things that will be manipulations of history to create the direction of the march, the direction of the parade to reach its goal. (laughs) And this is what King David says in Psalms, God, you did many, many different things in your world. And there's so many and they are so great that I can only speak of them as wondrous things. But one thing I know, even though I can't understand them, one thing I know, the common denominator of all of them is that you are interested in getting us all closer to you there's a direction to everything that you're doing How, as, as many actions as there are as many things that are going on underneath it all your thoughts are towards us again, the concept of the march the concept of the focus the concept of the direction towards a goal and this is what Isaiah says God comes with what would seem to be distant and far-reaching manipulations to make something happen. And being that God is a skilled craftsman, he knows how to do those things. He knows how to do that which seems to be far-fetched, that the end of the far-fetched historical manipulation is a march in the direction of the Tikkun. And so it says in Samuel, Not only God, does God do this on the national level, this is very, very beautiful, but God does this on the individual level as well. God turns over, upside down, back and forth, trying to manipulate the circumstances of a person's life that he too should march towards the realization of his own potential it's interesting that this particular Pasuk, just to get the historical background what's the historical background of this Pasuk Uh, if I'm not mistaken Shmuel is, is teaching David in this Pasuk that he should forgive his son Avshalom. Because just like in Midas HaKadosh Baruch Hu God never gives up hope, David should also not give up hope for his son Avshalom. And what the what the Navi tells David HaMelech is that not only doesn't God give up hope, but God manipulates behind the scenes in a person's life to give the person many opportunities to march in the direction of his potential. And essentially what the Navi, what the Prophet is telling Shmuel is, is telling David is, how do you have the right to write off Avshalem? Now those of you that are familiar with Afshalom know that Avshalom went against his father. Avshalom stole a wife of his father. Abshalom tried to tear down the 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 government of his father and nevertheless, the prophet comes to David and says to David, "That's not Midas kodesh baruchu. To write him off is not mitzvah kodesh baruchu." V'chashav yidach mi That God doesn't want ultimately to push away the person. So, what the why Levzado is bringing this particular pasuk is, pasuk is to suggest that while this is definitely true on the national level, this is also true on the individual level as well now, on the individual level it's very conceivable that a person pushes off the message that God sends a person stand up on your feet and start marching a person can do that a person can push off the message a person can resist the message a person can can disregard or ignore the message a person can do that on the national level God doesn't let it happen absolutely doesn't let it happen because there the vested interest of the entire world is at stake and there God will not let it happen within the context of this world in the context of the eternity of any person's existence God doesn't let it happen to anybody and if a person chooses not to to, to stand up and march in this world the person will stand up and march in the next world but in terms of the world the realization that the world has to reach, God doesn't allow the world not to. That the world that man should not take up that march in the direction of tikkun. Let's finish the paragraph. haKadosh Baruch Hu, and now at the end of this whole description, Rav Shchayam tells you why he said it. And I've already elaborated on it, but he brings it out now. God doesn't operate with one conduct of good and bad, with negativity, and then all of a sudden, abruptly, just drops it all and goes into another hanhaga. That's not the way of God, right? Because then there's no normal transition, and there's no way that man can really feel and sense and absorb and enjoy the transition from one historical level to the other. Man has no connection to it, no relationship to it. God doesn't act like a person that all of a sudden one day decides, uh-uh, I made a mistake, let's do it differently. God's great wisdom is that His will actually lead into... His Hanhagas HaYichud. That God utilizes the opportunities of the Toi that are in the world to lead into the Hanhagas HaYichud. And that's what I was referring to when I said before that the greater the negativity becomes, that itself is a march into Yichud as well. That is also a march into it. So the scenario that we have is the following. God starts the world with Hanhagas HaMishpat. No matter what happens, the world is marching towards Yichud. Why? If man chooses to do the right thing, every right choice is a march in the direction of Yichud, a march in the direction of that in t- t- into the realization of that oneness. If man doesn't choose to do it and prefers to make the negativity more and more, the greater the negativity becomes, the, 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 the more the foundation upon which it stands is being threatened. So one way or another whichever way you slice the thing the world is marching to its tikkun either by the, by the propagation of negativity which means that the bigger it becomes the more that it's guaranteeing its self-destruction or by the destruction that we bring into it by the good choices that we make but one way or the other the system of negativity is slowly eroding itself one way or the other, every moment of existence is a moment of, of, of erosion of the negativity and therefore a march towards the Tikkun. This is what Rima Meshachayim Latzat is saying. Everything will be completed. God will reveal His oneness. And in the future I will explain this and expound on this even more. Are there any questions before, before we attempt going further? Okay, you, you first and then you're, you're right after. If, uh, if the world is going to, it, when the world is going to its nativity, aren't we better off not doing Mitzvah so we'll complete it and, and, and then it will be completely negative and Mashiach uh, will come Because otherwise, uh, we're keeping it up. Uh, so one or two people are doing the Mitzvah. Okay. Okay. It's not so simple to quantify this concept, which is the, the mistake that you know that we sometimes make. Um, it's not easy to quantify this thing. Going back to the example that I gave, just to answer the question, my first answer is that we cannot quantify this. Uh, that one person is doing a mitzvah and the whole the rest of the world is not. So you turn to this one person that's doing the mitzvah and you say to him, "You bum! You prevented Mashiach from coming." If, you, if we, we almost had a perfect perfect situation here, and because you did the mitzvah, Mashiach's not going to come. the The truth of the matter is the truth of the matter is that we don't really know how to quantify, you know, how to quantify what is referred to as darshakula zaka Dar darshakula we don't know what it's all about. You know, there are many people out there that we could look at and we wouldn't for, the, for one moment think to ourselves that they're making any kind of contribution to, the, to a generation of Kula Zakai, to a generation that's totally meritorious and we're making a big mistake. Sometimes the simplest people, the quote-unquote, what we would consider the emptiest Jew... Is contributing to the scene of darshikula Kulizaka. We don't know what what we don't even know how to measure the extent, you know, the extent of of uh, of what a human being is all about. You know, we we think we have the measurements. You know, uh, how many mitzvahs did you do today? How many averes did you do today? Okay, you're in the team that's working for darshikula and you're working in the team of K- darshikula Zaka. You're working for the for the generation that's totally meritorious you're working for the team that's that way we don't have a way of quantifying these things because sometimes the, the, the simplest of things is a contribution to Dar Kula that's first of all it's very difficult to quantify secondly going back to the example that I gave of the person that's afflicted with leprosy right? he has leprosy on one little, one little spot Okay, he's Tame if he has it over his entire body he's, he's, he's tar Now, let's take your question and apply it to this person. A person comes into the doctor or to the Kayin who is his spiritual doctor and he has a little leprosy. And he knows that if the leprosy would be over his whole body, he would be tired. So he turns to the Kayin and he says, Kayin, what can I do so that this leprosy should spread from head to toe? Because I know that if it spreads from head to toe, then I'll be tired. Isn't that the good way to... Do- I don't want to deal with my negativity, so I want a prescription to become so sick right, that I'll be tar. That's, 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 essentially, that's essentially putting the per- question into perspective. In other words, there's no question that when a generation is so sick, it's, it's going to have to bring a tikkun afterwards. But we don't want to be so sick because the pain and the therapy and everything that we would have to go through that person that has leprosy over his whole body and his tire is not very healthy he's not very healthy it's precisely because he is so unhealthy that maybe he's so he's closer to purity because he's going through such a difficult therapeutic process so when we ask the question, why don't we just all work for Dara Shekula Chayif, the answer is that that would be saying let's work to get ourselves so sick that we have no other recourse and we have no other hope except for God to, to, to pull us out. Right. People, We don't want those things. Obviously we want to be able to approach the, 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 that, the ultimate goals uh, in a healthy state, in a positive state, uh, free of as much pain as possible. I mean, that, the reality of our lives is that we search for that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But three-quarters of the anguish that people have over suffering is because they'd like to get to the goal in a more comfortable way. In other words, most people, if you'll tell them that suffering is, is a function in getting to a goal, they won't argue with you that they don't want the goal. They'll just say that we prefer getting there in a Mercedes. Right? We don't, we don't feel like getting there through suffering. Right? So the phenomena of man, and rightfully so, is, is not to, is not to try to arrive at ultimate goals through extreme situations of therapy. And that's why, obviously, that we're working in that kind of a situation. Now, the Chofetz Chaim says something very interesting on this Gemara. In a generation that's totally meritorious or a generation that's totally not. The Chafetz Chaim says... You will never get a world... That will be either totally meritorious... Or totally negative... Either one of them... Is very hard to conceive of... So what does the Chazal mean? What does it mean? And it's not contrary to what I said by the way... You'll see in a moment that it's not in contradiction... So the Chafetz Chaim says... There will come a time... In the condition... Of the Jewish people... That you will have... The condition of either... kule zaka or kule chayef. That a person... Will, will make a statement that will be a full-fledged statement or of commitment, a full-fledged statement of sincerity, or no statement at all, but no mixtures. Do you follow what I'm saying? In other words, that the, 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 the middle is gonna fall out. In other words, the notion of making all kinds of mixtures. I'll do a little of this and my Judaism will be a pick and choose kind of a situation. And I'll do this to clear my conscience and I'll do this because I like it and this I won't do because I think it's antiquated. In other words, the the Judaism's of mixtures where people support themselves in negative viewpoints based upon a lot of good things that they do. The Chafetz Chaim says that before Mashiach comes that kind of a middle, that middle is going to fall out. And what we're going to find is the two clear poles. We're going to find the ones that are going to see the clarity of the whole system and the ones that would like to chuck the entire system. And it's in that kind of a scenario where you have both views, very dramatically viewed, that there will be that ultimate encounter between the truth and the falseness that will bring the Mashiach. Do you follow what I'm saying? So the view that everybody has to be in one camp where everybody has to be in the other camp, the Chavetz Chaim says it's not true. But the the, the the Chalins and the Kalatushas and all of those other things that people like go on existing with, those things are going to fall out. Whatever you believe, you're going to believe in strongly. And whatever you don't believe in, you're going to not believe in strongly and that's going to be those are going to be valid positions upon which uh, the, the event the events of Mashiach can play themselves out Mashiach will not play himself out on a scenario of mediocrity there is not where Mashiach is going, to, is going to proclaim his message Mashiach will proclaim his message with people that have statements to make either very positive ones or very negative ones but they stand for something He's not going to come into a scenario of mediocrity. That's, he, there he's not going to go. Because mediocrity, by definition, is not looking for quality. Mashiach is a quality situation. What the Chazala is saying is that before Mashiach comes, mediocrity we're not going to be dealing with. We're going to be dealing with two clear viewpoints. And anybody that has a sense of what's going on in the world knows how true the words of the Chafetz Chaim are and how we are rapidly approaching that kind of a situation. I have to be somewhere else, so I have to stop now. <clears throat>